You're listening to a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is Armand Dangor, the author of Socrates in Love, The Making of a Philosopher. In the conversation, we discuss the life and development of Socrates as a philosopher. We delve into Socrates' philosophy and why he's such a perennial figure. Specifically, you can expect to learn about the idea of the soul, the importance of questioning assumptions, self-reflection, and much more. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope you do as well. Without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Armand Dangor. All right. Well, Armand, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you. It is a pleasure to have you. I'm excited to talk about your book, Socrates in Love. But before we get into the book, we generally spend a few minutes and try to get to know you. Um, Would you mind sharing with us how you initially found an interest in philosophy? I was actually teaching the texts which give us the basis for knowing about Socrates' life for around 20 years. I mean, so I teach the classics at Oxford and uh, in tutorials on, um, in this particular case, uh, the cultural and historical context of uh, Socrates, that is the 5th century BC, Athens. Um, a couple of the texts that we regularly teach uh, are Plato's Symposium, a dialogue which gives us a lot of biographical information about Socrates, and Aristophanes' play, the comic play, um, The Clouds, in which there is a central character that goes under the name Socrates that is clearly meant to be some kind of um, satirical or parodic version of the philosopher himself who would have been well known in Athens at that time so the play was produced in 423 BC when Socrates was um, he'd have been in his 40s and would have been well known to the audience and there is a story that he attended the comedy and he stood up uh, when people were asking who is this Socrates um, you know is being made fun of and just to show everybody, well, this is this is it, this is it. This is me. <laughs> I, I call it his Spart- Spartacus moment. You know, who's, I'm Spartacus. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm curious. You know, if you could go back to high school or before, or you know, early on in college, how did this all get get started? Do you do you remember any specific moments yeah, or things I mean, come to mind? So I, I went to school in England in the 90, uh, this is you know, junior school in the 1960s. And in the 1960s, um, if you were good at languages rather than, say, mathematics, then you tended to be steered towards learning Latin and Greek. Mm. So I learned Latin at the age of about seven, and Greek uh, started about a year later. So I was learning these ancient languages, and I fell in love with them. Mm. And I then went on and uh, did them at, um, at uh, high school and university um, as my main area of study. 
I then actually left the academic world for about 12 years and did various other things, but I kept being drawn back and ended up back at, back at Oxford, where I still am as a professor, teaching the, the subject uh, of classics, which is uh, you know what it's called at the, in the university, ancient Greek and Latin literature, history, philosophy, um, and sundry cultural aspects that one might come across. So, um, yeah, so I've been um, intrigued and fascinated by classical literature and history for a very long time, <laughs> um, about 50 years. <clears throat> and um, this is just one aspect. I mean, I am particularly fond of Plato as, a, as an author. I think he writes beautifully. I think you could study his works for a lifetime and still not get to the bottom of them. I also find that the historical background, which very often comes into the dialogues of Plato, is fascinating to try and make sense of. Mm. Um, because although philosophers can take ancient philosophy like Plato or other ancient philosophers and use them as a basis for thinking about philosophical topics, I'm more of a historian, so although I like to think about the philosophical topics, whether it's you know what is goodness or justice, uh, say that might come out of Plato's Republic, I'm also really interested at the local colour which Plato gives, as, as he always does in his dialogues, to the environment in which Socrates, who is the main character who speaks in Plato's dialogues, uh, operated. So it's a combination of historical and philosophical interest. And with Socrates, I think there is a lot of um, biographical interest uh, that hasn't been fully elucidated or explored. And when I started writing my book, I was really thinking of extracting the data that we can find in Plato and other authors about Socrates as a young man. Because the question in my mind was, how did Socrates become the philosopher he became? Because he became a very revolutionary style of philosopher. Um, Cicero said, you know, he brought philosophy down from the heavens to earth. Socrates made his philosophy about how human beings should live, rather than the kind of metaphysics or even physics that we get in previous Greek philosophers the so-called pre-Socratic philosophers who talked about does the world consist of water or air or some indefinable element. Uh, these were the philosophers who operated before Socrates did and whom he knew intimately. Uh, some of them he actually met. He talks about having met Parmenides, for example, in a, in, in a dialogue of Plato. We read that Socrates saying, I met Parmenides when he was very old. So Parmenides who would have been a philosopher born sometime in the 6th century BC and very old when Socrates met him in the 5th as a boy. Um, and so he knew those philosophers, but he turned away from the kind of inquiry which characterizes pre-Socratic philosophy and created his own method and his own direction for philosophy. And he never said he was a wise or clever 
person himself. He actually rejected that notion and said he was a searcher of wisdom. And that is where the word philosophos comes into its own, because in Greek it means someone who loves wisdom. And a lover is, as Socrates would say in great detail, someone who pursues something that is lacking. Mm. Pursuing, you're pursuing something because you don't have it. So you're pursuing wisdom if you're a philosopher because it's something you want to get. And so he claimed he was always a philosopher, someone who was seeking wisdom and not a sophos, which is just the second part of the word philosophos, which means a wise or clever person who knows stuff. Mm. Uh, so that to me is, is really interesting because ancient Greece did have a tradition of wise men, of sages, of people who they would quote as saying clever things. And Socrates didn't want to claim that kind of wisdom or knowledge. So fascinating. I, I appreciate you sharing some some background there, Armand, and you, you maybe kind of answered this a little bit already thus far, but we generally start with um, just defining basic terms. And I think most people have heard the name Socrates. They know a little, you know, bit, maybe they've heard of the death of Socrates, but briefly, why is he such a perennial figure? Like, why is he a figure that you know, we are we are wise to to think about and learn from today in, in modern life. Various answers to that, but perhaps uh, yeah. a single word answer would be Plato. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how do we know about um, Jesus Christ? Because St. Paul uh, wrote you know, Acts of the Apostles and, and letters and so on, that tell us an awful lot about Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus himself left no writing. Socrates left no writing. So uh, you could say that without the individuals who wrote about and promoted these great figures, they would be relatively unknown. And it's certainly the case with Socrates that one of the reasons we know about him is that his great pupil, Plato, who would have been about 15 when he met Socrates and not much older than 25 when Socrates was executed, uh, wrote 30-odd books, sometimes usually called dialogues, in which he makes Socrates the central figure and he has Socrates espouse his philosophical method and present philosophical notions and the 19th century English mathematician A.N. Whitehead said that it's uh, a safe generalization that the history of Western philosophy is just a series of footnotes to Plato. <laughs> yeah. uh, the point of that being that Plato wrote so much and in such detail and with such brilliance that he laid down most of the basic philosophical questions that have been thought about by philosophers ever since. And so when we ask why Socrates, it's because we have this huge corpus of brilliant writing by Plato in which Socrates is the central mouthpiece. Socrates is the one who's talking, asking questions, 
presenting ideas, and those ideas are perennial. They ask questions like, what is beauty and what is truth and what is knowledge? What is love? How should we live? These are the questions that Socrates asked, and the dialogues of Plato are witnesses and records of the answers that, up to a point, Socrates elicits from interlocutors mm. rather than giving himself. So there is a history of Plato's own dialogues over the course of the 30-odd years that he wrote them, and by the end, one feels that Plato is presenting his own very positive um, doctrines that uh, have moved away from what Socrates himself did. Yeah. Well, it's good to have you here, Armand. I'm uh, got a series of curiosity questions that have that I've been wondering for quite some time, and some of these things that you that you write in the book, and and one is um, Socrates' inner voice. You you write he calls the voice his divine sign and must sometimes stand still for long periods to work out what it requires him to do. Sometimes when we think of some of these ancient philosophers, we don't necessarily tie it to things like that. We think of like mystics and saints and all of that type of stuff for for that language. Like, could you say say more there? Yes, Socrates, of course, comes across as a very rational philosopher. He's a rational thinker. He uses words carefully. He tries to understand what words mean. So he's not one of these mystical philosophers who uh, claims to have some revelation about the world that he passes on. Uh, he's not trying to suggest that he has a personal link with uh, with the divine realm, which gives him special knowledge. So it comes as a slight surprise that one of the features which we know about him is that he had an inner voice. As you say, his, he calls it his divine sign. The Greek word is daimonion, his, his, the spiritual thing that goes on. And in my book, I try to give it a rational explanation because people say, well, Socrates had a voice which advised him or guided him. Well, what does that actually mean in reality? I mean, Socrates was a real human being. He certainly was known to have had some condition which meant that he heard a voice, which he claimed on the whole stopped him from doing things that might bring him into danger rather than giving him positive advice as to what to do. And um, the answer seems to me that it, to be that it was a, a physical condition of some kind. We know that people hear voices. Apparently, it's much more common than we generally imagine. Something perhaps like one in five people hear voices, whether it's every so often or on a more regular basis. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps, you know, I, I myself, I think, have probably had moments when some, suddenly I hear something which can't have actually been the case because there was no one around, as if somebody had said something. So we know this phenomenon of hearing voices exists. You don't have to be um, an enlightened um, shaman <laughs> or um, a philosophical um, 
sort of divine being of some kind to hear one. Socrates had that condition. It was more regular than for him than it was for others. It was something that he noted about himself and others found slightly disconcerting about him. But it didn't tell him what the truth is. I mean, it didn't tell him, you know, give him some divine revelation. Uh, so I talk about it as a kind of condition. I talk about the possible medical underpinnings of what we know about people hearing voices. And I even make a suggestion that it's the kind of thing that some people develop as a result of traumas in their early childhood. And there could have been, there's some suggestion, there was a bit of a trauma that Socrates underwent because he was at odds with his father. And it's possible that his father beat him and that that trauma was somehow lodged in the young boy and ended up as being a, a voice that commanded him to do things. I mean, so it sounds a bit like being subject to your paternal uh, authority. <clears throat> and, you, you know, so if, if that voice had developed, and this is pure speculation, as a result of perhaps being, you know, being abused by his father, um, by beating and so on, uh, then it's possible that in due course Socrates turned it into something that he allowed to see as a, a source of advice and counsel. Yeah. So that's what we learn. Um, to continue the speculation a bit, um, what about from a, a maybe a very practical sense, like uh, are conscious some sort of moral um, compass that we might have? Like, don't we know um, at a very young age kind of what is right and wrong what is good this and that don't we naturally kind of um i mean is sometimes that seen as a as an inner voice i think that some might dispute the notion that we're born with a natural sense of what is good or bad um yeah they say these things require cultural or social or parental input and that we develop a sense of morality. Um, if you're a psychologist, if you're Freudian, you might say you develop something called the superego, the thing that gives you a conscience and therefore makes you feel that certain things are the right thing to do and certain things are the wrong thing to do. But how do we actually get to that view? Um, you would say that it's fairly natural for human beings to want to preserve themselves and those things around us that help us to have the life we want and that help to preserve us. There's a certain reciprocity involved. Uh, altruism may arise out of that sense of reciprocity. Whatever one's views about the development of individual morality, whether it's natural or not, in the end, what we do is we subject our moral intuitions, which is what we might call them, to rational uh, debate and discussion and so you might say it's something that we naturally assume that killing is bad killing other human beings on the other hand we seem very easily as groups to overcome that uh, intuition and to kill others 
who happen to be our enemies with extreme uh, liberty. So, um, so how do we actually rationalize and, and decide what is good and what is bad? It becomes a little more complex than saying that we have an intuition. Yeah, yeah. And um, Socrates' uh, divine voice certainly didn't give him that kind of intuition, or he never claims it did. Yeah. Um, I think there was a cultural assumption about certain things being good and bad, and it was related very strongly in Socrates' mind to words that indicate things that everybody assumes are good and bad things. So justice automatically is seen as a good thing. No one's going to go around saying, no, no, injustice is a good thing. Uh, courage is a good thing. No one's going to say cowardice is a good thing. So, of course, there are natural intuitions, things that people agree about. And Socrates wanted to interrogate those assumptions. So one of the things he does is he says, well, you know that uh, it's good to be brave, but what is bravery? If somebody is um, fighting against insuperable odds and they know they and their platoon are going to be destroyed, is it brave or is it just stupid for them to continue? You know, what, where, what does bravery actually consist of? So people then will give examples when Socrates asks a question like that. And he'll say, I don't just want examples because, you know, this might be brave under these circumstances, but not under those circumstances. I want yeah. to know what bravery itself is. So he is looking for definitions, and that is one very important part of the Socratic method. So when you introduced this uh, podcast, you said people think about certain things like the uh, Socratic method. I mean, people still talk about the Socratic method, a way of eliciting the truth by asking questions. In uh, Socrates' own experience, he felt what he needed to do was to show how people's assumptions were actually incorrect and to strip away the incorrect assumptions and the untruths in order to get closer to what might be the nub of the, the, the answer, the solution, the, the correct answer, even though he believed that you never really got to it. You never got that absolute knowledge, essentially, until you died. Yeah. <laughs> and when you died, your soul might then be in a position to be in direct contact with knowledge itself. Yeah. It's so fascinating that um, it's, it seems like in modern times, that's still a challenging thing for us as well. Like we still haven't quite figured out or, or really like embrace the value of, um, of these, these questions. We almost like, leap over them to uh to other things interesting um another another term that comes up in a, a previous podcast kind of talked about philosophy as therapy for the soul um and the word the word soul comes up and i i realized that i i kind of forgot to ask like you know what does that exactly mean what did they mean when they're saying soul yeah, so the Greek word for soul is psyche, um, from which we get the word psyche. And the term itself was used for various things. So in the earliest literature from ancient Greece, the epics of Homer, the psyche is the essence of the, the personality that survives one's bodily death. 
And um, when the body is destroyed, say in battle, the psuche detaches itself almost as if it's a sort of ectoplasm and it flutters away down to the underworld where in some accounts it joins other souls waiting to be reborn. This was a very common view in in the Greek world that somehow you had a soul that had been incarnated in another body at some stage and then when that body died your psuche your soul survived and then your person was reincarnated in a new one but you didn't remember so they had a reason to think that your soul when it goes down to the underworld first thing it does because it is thirsty is it drinks from the river of lethe which means oblivion and therefore it forgets its previous life. So we're all reincarnated souls, but it's not much good to us. We don't remember who we were before. So that then leads to a different view about what the psuche might be, which is some kind of soul stuff. It isn't very specifically me that goes down to the underworld and me that comes back, because when I come back as someone else, or even as an animal then I don't remember the me that was there before. So perhaps the psuche is some kind of soul stuff that ends up surviving in some form in order to be reborn into another body. So you might call it a kind of life element rather than personality. So there are very different ways of thinking about it, but it was something that survives the body, something that transcends our bodily existence, something that was of supreme importance to a philosopher such as Socrates, because he believed that is the thing that really matters, how we behave and act and think. That is the function of our mind, which, of course, is part of this um, vital element called the soul. And that is more important than the physical element of our body, which tends to drag us down, which tends to mean that the psuche is uh, corrupted into certain kinds of activity that are to do with appetite or to do with desire and aren't necessarily what the rational part of our mind, of our spirit, uh, would advise. So that's what the soul is in broad terms. Uh, And the key thing is that it is for Socrates, the most important thing that you need to cultivate in your life. You shouldn't be cultivating the pleasure of your body or your desires. You should be cultivating the thing that makes you a living being, and that is your soul. That makes you a living being with a connection to the divine, because uh, the divine is entirely about that realm of the spirit. Another like curiosity question I, I have for you is um and you, you talk about this a little bit in the book of some of these different accounts of Socrates. You might think of of Xenophon, Plato as as you already mentioned. How do you make sense of of some of these different accounts of, of how people talk about Socrates? So he was obviously a well known figure in the fifth the mid and late fifth century. So when he starts philosophizing, perhaps in the uh, 440s BC, he becomes very quickly 
known to his fellow Athenians as someone who's perhaps a bit of a nuisance, because here's this guy walking around Athens, subjecting people to interrogation, and not just you know well-known elite politicians, but your average artisan who has certain assumptions about life and knowledge, wisdom, truth, beauty, courage, and so on. And so there is this character, and he manages to form around him a group of people who feel that he is really onto something. So much so that one of his followers, a man called Chirophone, actually goes and asks the Delphic Oracle, which is the uh, the prophetic spirit considered to be the voice of the god Apollo, based in the city of Delphi, uh, north of Athens. And um, Chirophone goes to Delphi and asks the question, possibly sometime in the 440s BC, when Socrates is in his let's say late 20s, early 30s, ask the question, is Socrates the cleverest of men? Now, why would you ask a question unless you thought, well, this guy is really clever. Let me see if the oracle can, you know, the oracle of Apollo can confirm that. And so he does go and ask that question. Is he the cleverest of men? And the oracle responds, yes, he is. <laughs> now, whether Socrates is there with Chirophon at the time, <laughs> Chirophon comes back in. He says, I asked the oracle of Apollo and the god himself has confirmed that you're the cleverest of men and you claim you don't know anything. <laughs> well, Socrates says he was shocked by this, you know, whether he heard the oracle himself, as I say, or it was reported to him. And he wanted to know what it meant because he, he didn't think he was the cleverest of men. So he said, I made it my business to go and speak to people who had a reputation for being clever. And I would ask them questions, and I realized that they thought they knew the answers, but most of the time, of course, they didn't. Because as soon as you subject them to questioning about what they think they know, you realize that they don't know. They don't know that something is the case on one moment, but not in another. They don't realize that they haven't got the key to the questions about life that Socrates wants to ask. And so he said he realized at that point what his mission was which was to discover to, uh, a way of getting closer to the truth. Um, but also he realized that what Apollo meant by he was the cleverest of men, of men was that he knew that he didn't know. And every, every, all these other clever people were pretty sure that they did know the answers. Socrates alone knew that he was radically ignorant of the truth and that therefore it was his duty for his whole lifetime, to try and seek the answers to which there were going to be no clear answers. So, so to ask those questions uh, without ever thinking he'd reached the answer. So that's how he came to the view that he understood what the oracle meant by he was the cleverest man alive. And that's one of the fascinating aspects of Socrates, that he says, you know, the one thing I know is that I don't know and that's one of the fascinating aspects of the Symposium of Plato, which is a dialogue on love, where it's one of the few times where Socrates claims to know something, and in that particular case, he knows about love. So how do you 
square that contradiction. I, don't, uh, I, I know that I know nothing, but I do know about love. <laughs> and the answer is, I know about love because I was taught it by someone who really knew the answer. This is what he tells us in that dialogue. People somewhat dismissed that. And they said, well, the person who he claims taught him the answer is a woman who doesn't even exist. Her name, Diotima, is one that's given in the dialogue. We know nothing about such a person existing independently of the dialogue. And so people have dismissed the idea that this is anything but a way of presenting his doctrine of love, which is not wholly conclusive. He puts it into the mouth of this woman. Uh, she comes up with the doctrine, but we're not clear from Plato's Symposium whether that's the answer we're supposed to take away. Mm. Because, you know, other things happen in the dialogue which seem to cast doubt on the answer that the woman Diotima gives. But uh, when I was investigating the symposium and asking if Socrates claims that he knows about love because he heard it from a woman, if we're to take that as a biographical comment and something that Plato perhaps had heard him say, then this woman perhaps is identifiable. And I thought, well, what about the name itself, Diotima? And what about the way he introduces this famous clever woman, as, as you know, he says she was? And there were two huge clues there, which to my amazement had been overlooked by basically every scholar who's ever looked into the Platonic uh, history of Socrates. Um, and now you could dismiss those clues, but to me, they add up to a very clear pointer. Diotima, the name means honoured by Zeus in Greek, and Zeus was uh, the nickname given to the leading citizen of Athens at the time, Pericles. Pericles, who was a leading statesman, who was a great orator, so he was said to have thundered but, uh, like the god Zeus, who was the god of thunder, amongst other things. And honoured by Zeus points to the person who was famously honoured by Pericles, his wife or concubine, Diota, who was actually known as, whose name was Aspasia, and who independent evidence shows gave uh, salons in which he talks about love. Yeah. So that was one thing, the name, and the other was that uh, Socrates says this was a very clever woman in all sorts of ways, this Diotima, and among other things, she postponed the plague at Athens for 10 years. And so I was wondering, why would he introduce a fictional woman with such a specific claim and did the math, as they say, 10 years before the plague, the plague of Athens, 430 to 29 BC, in which Pericles died from that plague. Um, but 10 years before that, 440 to 439 BC, Pericles had been central to a campaign against the island of Samos, in which he had been responsible for brutal behavior. He had, after he'd conquered the island, he'd strung up the opposing commanders on crosses, mm. and he had um, had them thrown, their bodies thrown out without burial. And so Greek superstition at the time would have been certain that such behavior would lead to divine retribution in almost certainly in the form of plague. Plague didn't happen at that period. It happened 10 years later. So it seems likely that people said there 
there was something that stopped the play happening in 4.40, but it made it happen in 4.30. And the idea that the woman might have done this by instituting sacrifices, this is what Socrates says when he introduced the Atma, she instituted sacrifices, the Athenians sacrificed and thereby warded off the plague for 10 years. Well, if there's going to be any woman in the picture in 440, it can only be Aspasia, especially if she's supposed to be a clever woman. There weren't many clever women in Athens. She's more or less the only one we know about. Mm. She was famously clever. Pericles fell in love with her because she was so clever. He, she was supposed to have been uh, influent, influential in all his life and his campaigns, not least the one in 440 when he attacked the island of Samos. And so she's there very much in the picture. And that combined with the name Diotima, honoured honored by Zeus, honoured by Pericles, suggested to me that Socrates was in some disguised way talking about her and that Plato wanted us to know that. And why the disguise? Well, there are perfectly good reasons why he might have wanted to disguise the fact that this was actually a real woman, Aspasia, and to give her this fictional name. Um, one of the main reasons was that the doctrine that Diotima goes on to give is clearly not one that Aspasia herself could have given, because it talks about an idea that is very much Plato's own and is developed in Plato's own philosophical um, later dialogues, and that is the idea of the forms. These are these things that exist eternally in another realm and are unchanging and are the essence of what um, we might call things such as abstract qualities such as justice and truth and knowledge are. There's a form of these things, there's a form of justice, and everything that we see on earth, Plato thought, was just a pale imitation of that. So we have just acts, uh, just behaviors, uh, but justice itself is up there and giving these are just tokens, you might say, of that type. Mm. So the fact that um, Diosma comes out with that kind of view means that this is not something that could be credited to Aspasia herself and not even to Socrates. And so he's not going to put in her mouth a doctrine that would not have been something she should have the credit for. And so he he makes her Diotima. And that's one very good reason why he gives her this name of someone who doesn't actually exist. Uh, <clears throat> while at the same time hinting that the basic of what the basics of what she was saying come from what Aspasia herself said about love. And I think what Aspasia herself said about love is in the early part of what Diotima says, which is that it is a higher thing than simply physical attraction. So that's what we call platonic love, you know, push away sex and physical attraction. Love is something higher than that. You can imagine Aspasia saying that, and indeed the little evidence we have of what she actually said suggests that it may well be something she said. So interesting. You, you said the word uh, salon. Um, what, what does that mean? What is a salon? Oh, um, just uh, you have a group of people gathering and listening to an expert. And hmm. we know about this from, nice. um, uh, from what we learn in Plato's dialogues 
Socrates does a, a lot of the time. He goes to the house of a rich man, say Callias, and he hears Protagoras, another famous philosopher of the day, so sophist, uh, talking about education and, uh, and virtue, and he subjects this man to questions. So one has to imagine that there are the, the way um, you might say further education or adult education uh, operated in ancient Athens was that there were rich uh, patrons of the arts or of knowledge who might um, support and sustain a thinker. Very often these thinkers came from outside of Athens, so they weren't Athenian citizens, uh, so they had to be sponsored in some way. And so let's say they're sponsored in these houses uh, of these rich people, and there's a public invitation, at least to elite Athenians, to go along and listen to these people and question them. And we see this happening in some of Plato's dialogues with Socrates and other elite Athenians surrounding uh, important thinkers like Protagoras. So um, the evidence for Aspasia is that she came from Miletus, which is in Asia Minor, to Athens when she was around the age of 20. And she was part of an elite family, one that was actually related to Pericles, the leading citizen of Athens. And she would have been, under those circumstances, lodged with her father, say, or her father-in-law, we believe was it was the case, who was a relative of Pericles. And that's where Pericles himself would have met her and fallen in love with her because he eventually takes her to his own home and either marries her or makes her his permanent live-in mistress, whatever. But the fact is that she is then in the house of, say, Alcibiades, who is the, um, uh, the relative that had probably come with her from Miletus. And she uh, is so clever and, and so vivacious and so extraordinary, a very unusual woman, that she organizes uh, meetings whereby people can come along and speak to her about the thing that she knows best. And that is, well, it's a cross between a sort of marriage counselor and a um, uh, a matchmaker. <laughs> so what we learn from the evidence that is reported, this comes from a biography of Aspasia, which is lost, but was read by Cicero hundreds of years later, um, a, a biography by a man called Aristoxenus, uh, sorry, by a man called Aeschines, who um, wrote about Aspasia. And it says that she spoke to elite Athenians and to Socrates, amongst others, about love and marriage. And it gives a little snippet of how she operated. So um, a man called Xenophon, who probably isn't the historian, goes with his wife to her salon or to her um, advice or ther therapy um, uh, salon, whatever, whatever her <laughs> office, perhaps in the house of Alcibiades or Pericles, and asks, how can our relationship work as well as it possibly can? can? How can my wife be the best of wives for me? Mm. And her response is, only by you being the best of husbands to her. In other words, you have to assume the virtuous position and that will then allow her also to be a virtuous spouse to you. And so this notion that 
she is promoting moral behavior in a relationship is something that we can connect to the kind of thing that Socrates is looking at. What is the best way for a man to live or for a woman to live? The answer is to be good, amongst other things. Nice. I I made a note of, of something you write in the book around love and becoming whole that I'm curious about. You say that each of us is just a half of a human being and we are on an eternal quest to find our matching half. Love is the force that makes us try to restore our original natures and become whole again. Well, this is a wonderful story that is told in Plato's Symposium by the comic poet Aristophanes. So uh, each of the speakers, a symposium is a group of people who get together in this particular case not to drink, very often that was what symposium were about, but to debate. And the debate they chose uh, on that occasion was to praise love and to talk about love, love being both a, a, divi- a divine being, eros, a god, and obviously some abstract force of nature um, and human uh, interrelations. So um, so there's a mixture when they talk about this, but they they tell stories about the god Eros, and, they, and one of them, who is there present at this party, Aristophanes, who is a comic playwright, tells a very comic story. He says, originally human beings consisted of what is double what we now are. In other words, we had four arms and uh, four legs. Uh, we were sort of back to back. We had eyes on both sides of our head, two mouths, two noses, and so on. And we were terribly self-confident and as a result, we tried to uh, um, assail the realm of the gods. So instead of worshipping the gods, we, the original human beings, these roly-poly creatures, we had everything. Um, we tried to assail their realm, and they didn't like it. And Zeus, the chief of the gods, said, I know how to cut them down to size. I'm literally going to slice them in half. And he does so. And so we're sliced in half and we become the human beings we now are, essentially. But the thing we really want to do is to find that other half and to be whole again. And so Aristophanes tells this as a, as a story, you might say, in the etiology of love. He says, originally, we were, you know, we were two people stuck together. Now we've been separated and we're trying to get together again and be two people again. And so that's how he describes love, finding your other half. Now, it's obviously comic. It suggests, if you want to ask logically what it means, that we're looking for someone pretty well identical to ourselves, a mirror image, something that you know we might feel completes us because that's who we are. But it doesn't really satisfy Socrates or anyone else who's thinking about what love is. We don't just want to be a sort of narcissistic reflection of ourselves. When we fall in love with someone else, We want them to be different. We want them to be sufficiently different to excite us, to teach us so that we can learn from them so that love can help us to grow. And that is, in the end, what Socrates is saying love does. Love helps us to grow and to be creative in relation to another person. So while it's a lovely story and one that everybody takes away from the symposium says, that's the one I like most, you know, it's finding your other half again. It's not the answer. 
not the answer Socrates or Plato wants us to go away with, but it's a jolly nice story. Yeah. And as we start to wrap up, our, our time has flown flown by here, and I, I'm, I'm grateful for your time. Um, the Delphic maxim, know thyself, which uh, many people have, have probably heard, what did that mean to Socrates? What does it mean to know thyself? First and foremost, it's a religious injunction. So it was one of the maxims that was inscribed, he tells us, on the Temple of Apollo at Delphi. Uh, the other one, the other main one, there were three altogether, but uh, the other one that people talk about is nothing in excess. So don't kick over the the traces, don't do something that's going to be, um, that's going to cause divine vengeance. Don't become too, too rich, too powerful, too anything. That's one thing. Know thyself has a very similar feel to it, if you think of it as in religious terms. Know that you're a human being. Know that you're mortal. Know that you have limitations. That's probably essentially what it means from a religious point of view. Um, do not think that you are more than mortal and that you are going to be able to achieve anything beyond your nature. What it comes to mean is a little more developed than that it comes to mean take the time to think about your qualities what makes you a human being what makes you a good person what makes your life worth living so that turns into something more like the comment that is attributed to socrates by plato the unexamined life is not worth living by a human being. So because we have the gift of thought and reason, Socrates says we are endowed with this quality in order to examine our lives and ask how best we should live, not just to live like animals, unthinkingly. And um, the unexamined life is not worth living by a human being. It might be something worth living by an animal but not by us so how should we examine our life how should we ask ourselves whether we're doing the right thing whether our life is worth living the way it is worth living now by questioning socrates develops the socratic method the method of elenchus as it's sometimes called whereby you can question others or you can question yourself about your assumptions and your priorities and your activities, again, without necessarily assuming that you will come to the right answer, but at least what you're doing is examining your life and thinking about how best to live. Mm. So I think that's, in the end, what Know Yourself turns into for Socrates. Beautiful. I appreciate that. Um, you mentioned there the Delphic maxims and these three that were inscribed. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've always been curious... There, there's this list of 147 Delphic maxims, like as well, that were supposed. To, like, where were they inscribed? Where did these come from? And I, I encourage the listeners to maybe give them a Google because it's interesting how timeless and very practical, you know, this this list of these short maxims are. So I'm not aware of the 147 myself. I mean, I I say 
there were three that were inscribed on the temple. There were all kinds of other um, bits of wisdom that were collated. So the so-called seven sages were uh, or had something to, to say about life or mm. knowledge. Um, Pythagoras uh, has a loads of sayings about, uh, so the 6th century sage Pythagoras, um, you know, the, 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 there are the so-called golden verses of Pythagoras, which tell you that you should do X, Y, or Z, or not, or you should avoid X, Y, and Z. So, yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of so-called wisdom literature. And in fact, wisdom literature represents one of the very earliest of the great literary works from the classical world, which is the uh, works and days of Hesiod. But that's wisdom about how you should set about your making your livelihood, uh, finding your wife, <laughs> building your plough, farming, and so on. Yeah. Clearly, you know, every traditional society is going to want to collect and collate sentences and maxims, poems, and things that give you a sort of rule of thumb. This is what you should do in order to get on in life. And a lot of those rule those rules of thumb will be moral advice. You know, don't cheat, don't envy your neighbor, don't do X, Y, and Z. Um, and uh, that's, I think, what what we're talking about. Um, you know, there may be 147, there hundreds of different bits of advice, uh, and they would have been written down, they would have been preserved orally. Uh, many of them are preserved on much later texts that we have. Mm, beautiful. All right, well, we've made it to this final wrap-up question that we ask most guests that come on. Um, you know, how do you define or think about wisdom in daily life? I think that given that we're talking about Socrates, the answer must be clear uh, that you should always have a questioning, critical view of what you think the answer is. Because I think it's quite easy simply to assume from another authority, religious or otherwise, that this is the right thing to do or that's the right thing to do. And so often it's the case that that is uh, an easy option but not necessarily the right one and that one should think again and again whether or not what one is doing is right. Wisdom therefore requires something that's very difficult for most of us to sustain, which is provisionality. I think this is the right thing to do. I'm going to act on it, but I recognize that actually it's provisional and it might be that some information emerges which requires me to change my mind. And that is a difficult thing to hold in one's mind. But I think that is what Socrates is essentially espouses, that uh, wisdom, as far as we can get in human life, is the search for the right answer and the refusal to be satisfied with an answer. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. That's a great way to, to wrap it up. Again, I, I'm uh, super grateful for your time, Armand, for coming on. Again, the, the book is Socrates in Love. Um, is there anything that we didn't touch on that, that we should have before we wrap up? We touched on quite a lot, but I think that um, the book, which is called Socrates in Love, The Making of a Philosopher, actually tries to show that it is personal experience 
that tends to lead all of us to the views that we hold. And I think it's certainly arguable that Socrates' own personal experience and relationship with a very clever and brilliant woman is what led him to become the philosopher he became, at least partly, and that therefore we should give credit to the fact that Aspasia of Miletus, the woman he credits with his knowledge of love, is fundamental to the history of Western philosophy. Mm, nice. Well, Professor Arman, thank you again for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you very much, Josh. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. If you're interested in more podcasts, meditations, and courses on the art of living, consider checking out our daily newsletter, Perennial Meditations on Substack. Until next time, be wise and be well.